Please now to bow with me as we come uh, to the scripture. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, again, it amazes us that we have a book that has spoken of you, a book that has spoken of you to us in a way that we can understand. And not only that, that we can look back and we can see how all that you have promised has come to pass to give us even greater confidence in the promises that still remain, that is, the promise of the kingdom coming in all of its fullness. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as we take it up today, that you will be with us. You'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe that it will sink deep within us. You'll overcome any resistance, God, that we may have towards this word, and we may receive it as it is, as the very word of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to a couple of passages, one primarily. I want to take up just one verse in Matthew chapter 26, just to set a context, and then uh, Revelation chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 26, please, verse 29. This comes at the very end of what is titled always in the scripture as the Last Supper, I've been on a campaign for a number of years to rename it as the First Supper, but I haven't won the day yet, as I can tell from the introduction in my Bible. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus says to his disciples this. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then in Revelation in chapter 19, we have, if you will, the fulfillment of that. Revelation 19 and verse 1. After this, I heard, and this is the Apostle John, and he's been taken in this vision and he's seeing and hearing. He says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Hmm. Now, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent marks out the first season of what we call the Christian year. Now, the Bible doesn't know anything about this sort of Christian year thing uh, that begins uh, with Advent. But those who have gone before us in their wisdom... 
centuries before, thought it helpful for us not only to mark time by nature, but also to mark time by the life of Christ. Now, this has some Old Testament precedent, obviously, because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God not only marked time by nature and all of that, but he also marked time by his involvement in the lives of his people. For instance, there were celebrations, as time was marked out, of of Passover, uh, the marking out, the celebration of a time in redemptive history, a time in the life of ancient Israel, a life in history when um, um, God had delivered his people from Egypt. And then 50 days after that is this celebration of Pentecost, another marking of time, another stopping of people. Oh, I know what time of year it is. In our relationship with God, our time of year, what we're thinking about now is is Pentecost. God with his people became to be a celebration of the giving of the law. And then, of course, there is this time of not only Passover uh, and, 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 and Pentecost, but there's this day of atonement, this day upon which uh, a, a goat, a, an animal is slaughtered and its blood is taken, is sprinkled on the mercy seat of, in the holy of holies that people might know that their sins are forgiven thus they can live in the very presence of God. Another day, another time of marking time in the history of ancient Israel. And then, then there's this feast of tabernacles, a time when, when booths or tabernacles or tents really were made out of mud and, 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 and leaves and branches and so forth to commemorate a time in their history when in fact God had, had, had been with them during the wilderness time and, and provided for them and all of that. So, so time in ancient Israel was marked off not only by nature, not only by harvest and planting and all of that, but also by God's involvement in their lives. And so those who have gone before us, centuries before, said we should mark out, it would be helpful for us to mark out uh, time uh, for our lives each year certain markers that say this is not only November or December, but this is also Advent. And, and, and this is not only January, but this is Epiphany. This is, this is a time when, when we think about who was it who came? What's his identity? What's, what's the manifestation of this very one who's coming? And, and to mark out time not only, not only by uh, January or February or March, but, but, but Lent, this, this time of thinking about the, the temptation of Jesus and his, and his giving himself, his suffering. And, and so we can be uh, uh, thinking about our own repentance before him and the struggle that we have with confession, with, with the temptation and our need to confess and to repent and to turn and to die to ourselves that we might live unto God. And then this time of Holy Week as we, as we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem as the triumphant king, but then what happened during that week by Monday, Thursday, he was, he was with his disciples saying that he's going to die, and then Good Friday is crucifixion, and then of great, the, the great triumph of Easter Sunday of the resurrection of Jesus, and then thinking through the appearances of Jesus. And so it's not only March or April for us, but it's, it's this time of Holy Week, this time of, of Easter, this time of Easter tide of thinking about the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then we have a, a thought of the ascension of Jesus when he, when he goes to glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father so that he can rule and reign where he is even today. And then, and then the celebration of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and, and really the birth, if you will, of the, the church in, in, in that sense. And, and we have the Spirit to, to witness. And then this long season from, from Pentecost to Advent again, which is called in the history of the church the, the Trinity, which speaks to us of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his work in the world world and his work in our lives. And so it's just simply a way to mark, mark time. It's helpful for us to think it through with Advent, particularly because of how our culture has so abused Christmas. I was driving home from Pennsylvania the other day, and uh, 
Uh, we were listening to various radio stations in between books that we were listening to on tape and all of that sort of thing. Or not tape, whatever it's on now, those little plastic things. And um, small Frisbees. Uh, but uh, um, uh, I, I listened as long as I could stomach it to a station that was playing Christmas music. And I listened for about 30 minutes and never heard of Jesus. It's just amazing. The continuous Christmas music. Now, it's bad music because Christmas, I mean, rock and roll is not a good genre for Christmas. I just don't think. But, but, but it, just, it just was bad music. But I, I was listening for something of Jesus, but I heard nothing about him at all. So it's helpful for us to stop so we get sucked into that. But even more so, it's helpful for us, even if that Christmas celebration didn't exist as it does in our culture, but just to stop and think of the incarnation to make sure we stop and think of this one who has come, the word made flesh to dwell among us. And we speak of that so casually, but, but think of that. God in the flesh among us. So Advent, a, a helpful time. So what I want to do this Advent season is to consider, obviously, the coming of Jesus, but not in his first coming, but really in his second coming. Because Advent is traditionally for both, to think of the incarnation, his first arrival, his first Advent, but also his second Advent, to come as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we'll receive communion uh, each Sunday as we've been doing for a number of years during this Advent season. It's fitting that we would do that. That that first um, verse that I read you out of Matthew chapter 26, which comes, as I mentioned, at the tail end of of Jesus sharing this Passover meal, which then um, he took... Uh, to show his own death. He says at the very end of this passage, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's a prophetic word, if you will, a promise of Jesus saying a day will come when we'll eat again. But it won't be. We won't eat like this. We won't eat again like this. I'm with you face to face until my Father's kingdom has come in its, in its fullness. Now, Jesus spoke of his second coming. Quite often there was a day when his disciples even asked him about it. He said, they said Jesus, tell us, what are the signs of your coming? On that fateful night, the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was with his disciples, he spoke to them about his return as well. He said to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll go and prepare this place for you, and I will come back, and I will take you where I am, so that you can be with me. And so, again, this sense of his coming. We see in the epistles and in the writings of the New Testament, apart from the Gospels, the same sense. On on the day that Jesus ascended, an angel came and said, why do you marvel at this, that he's going up as he is or disappearing from our very eyes, this ascension? He said he's going to return in the same way that he's come back in glory. And so we see it, that he's going to return, this Jesus coming back. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the second coming of Jesus or what we might, what we might talk about. I trust you realize I'm not going to make any great predictions and I'm not going to be able to, to I'm not going to tell you um, the five keys to knowing who the Antichrist is or the scenarios that could lead up to a one world government or any of that. 
I, I actually had my fill of that last week as well. My little grandson, Sarah's baby, was born. And so I took the night shift, being nocturnal that I am. So for nine straight nights, I was up with my little grandson, which was a great time of bonding and all of that. And I watched a number of... Oh, reruns of Sports Center, and I even watched Sea Hunt for those of you my age who know about that in black and white. But I also got a great glimpse of all. Yeah, I'm sorry, you guys don't know what Sea Hunt is, but uh, um, but but um, when I watched a number of radio or television uh, preacher guys, um, Hal Lindsey, I thought he was gone. Uh, 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 Jack Van Impey, all these guys, they know exactly what is going to happen. It's amazing. I shouldn't watch these things. But so it'll be none of that. Uh, but, but, but the point for us is, is, is that he is coming back. How do we prepare for that? And what does that really mean that he's going to, that he's going to return? And now we see that he speaks a great deal about his, 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 his return. In fact, Jesus even spoke not only on this time of, of the last or first supper with his disciples, but he spoke of it also on another occasion as well, this feast that would come. In Matthew in chapter 8, we read of, of, of this uh, man from Capernaum, a centurion who comes to Jesus uh, and he, he, he appeals to him uh, to heal, for Jesus to heal this man's servant. And he has, he has great faith. And, and Jesus even marvels at this man's faith. And then in chapter 8 of Matthew, in the middle of verse 10, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was always confronting the religious leaders. He was always confronting them in a particular way, saying, you've had this information all this time, and yet you reject it. Yet here's this Roman, the centurion, who comes with great faith. And I'll tell you, he's going to act recline with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob in my kingdom. And so again, giving evidence that there's a meal to come, there's a feasting to come, there's a presence of Jesus with which we'll come with him. And he's saying to them, you're going to be cast out. You think yourselves to be sons of the kingdom. But, but this one and others like him who come by faith, they will be with me. And thus we come to Revelation 19, which is, which is really the culmination of all of this. It, it's where this feast happens, and it's mentioned in, in Revelation 19 as this marriage feast, marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and, and so we have two things coming together, a marriage and a feast, things that happen in, 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 in culture, of course. In fact, in the days of, of, of Jesus and even before, as I mentioned during our offering time, the tradition, the custom of marriage when something like this, that, that, a, that a match was made, whether there was a formal matchmaker, somebody hired to go out and find a wife for a particular man, or, or, or whether parents put it together, or however that was put together, it was most often done like that, that a match was made. And then a betrothal would be made because they would have to get to know each other. They wouldn't even know each other necessarily. And so they would make this commitment that we are going to be married. Thus, you remember with Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed to be married, yet they had not yet, as the scripture said, known one another or come together sexually. And so, so this betrothal time. And after the betrothal, there's this interim or interval between the betrothal and the actual marriage or wedding itself. 
And you can tell when the wedding takes place because the groom then comes to take his bride. The groom comes for her. And when he comes for her, there's this wedding and there's this great feast, this great celebration that could last up to a week of feasting together because this marriage has come. And so we see these two things coming together, even with our Lord Jesus. He spoke to it, to the centurion. He spoke of it around the table with his disciples that a day would come when they would eat together. And now here it comes together. And he speaks of it as the marriage feast of the Lamb. Appropriate throughout the Old Testament, God is often known as the husband to his people. Prophet Isaiah speaks of that often. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and of course the prophet Hosea speaks of God being the faithful partner to his unfaithful spouse. Yet God continues in his faithfulness to love and to cherish and to hold fast. <clears throat> we see it as well in the, in the New Covenant as, as, um, as the, the apostles speak of this. The apostle Paul, most especially in Ephesians chapter 5, he, he lays out the relationship between a husband and a wife. And in the end of that, when you think that he's about ready to say this is a great mystery about marriage, about how a husband and a wife, a man and a woman can be joined together, he says this mystery is profound, yet I am speaking uh, of Christ and his church. You see, from the very beginning, as God instituted marriage, he did so not only as we say in a marriage ceremony, for our welfare and happiness, but also to point us to something, also to show us something. The very marriage between Adam and Eve, where God said that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh, that was established so that God could illustrate for us the coming together of two, the union of two, how it is that two would join together so that we would understand the relationship between Christ and his church, our being joined with him so that that which is true of him is true of us. So that when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And so he says marriage is like that. It, it's that joining of two to be one. And even in, in, in creation, we see that Eve came from Adam. Different from him, but, 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 but like him. Like him enough so that they could be joined together as one, to rule together, yet she in submission to him. And we see that the church is taken from Christ, born from him. Not him but in his image. Called to rule with him, yet in submission to him. So marriage, you see, is a fitting image for our relationship with God, a relationship with Christ. We find it throughout uh, all of the scripture. And in fact, this feasting to come, Jesus speaks of, for instance, in Matthew in chapter 22, we have this parable that Jesus tells it's titled The Parable of the Wedding Feast. Let me read it to you out of Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast 
for his son. So there's this wedding feast that's coming, and it's a wedding feast for his son. So, so it's dripping with all kinds of imagery here. Verse 3, And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. You get the sense that the, an invitation had already come, and, and yet nobody was responding, nobody was RSVPing to this, to this wedding announcement. And, and so he sends out his servants, and he says, Find out why they're not coming. And verse 4, And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And so so you get the sense of the drama here. Now to refuse an invitation like that to the king of the king was treason. He was essentially saying, I don't need you, king. I'm self-sufficient. I can go do my business and I don't need you as my ruler. I can go do my business and I don't need to celebrate this marriage of your son who will be the next king, who will be the, the one who will rule over me. I don't really need his rule. I don't need his protection. I don't need his provision. I don't need anything from him. So just leave me alone. I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need any of that. Now, always lurking in the shadows here is Jesus turning the crank on the religious leaders, right? Because they're saying, in a sense, the same thing about God. I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need you. I can do it myself. I don't need your forgiveness. I can live in such a way that will merit your favor, if you will. I, don't, I have my own righteousness. I'll go do my own thing, and I'll be fine. I don't need you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've been invited to something, to come to this marriage feast, this celebration of the king's son, the very son of God. Why aren't you coming? Well, in this case, they don't seize the son because he hasn't come, but they seize the servants and kill them. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Of course he would for doing such a thing. Then... He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, it's interesting, the play on word here, because, because in, in a sense, they weren't worthy because they thought themselves too worthy. They weren't worthy because they said, we don't really need this. We don't really need the king. We can go on and do our own and live our own lives apart from him. So he says, they're not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had had no wedding garment. Now, in order to come to a wedding, you had to be dressed for it. Now, in this culture, the host of the wedding, in this case, the king, would supply the wedding garments. It wasn't as if you had to go out and get your own. It was they would be supplied. He would say, here, come, and I'll make sure you have everything, not only the food that you need for the celebration, but I'll even dress you to come. And yet there was one who refused that dress. There was no different than refusing, in a sense, to come. He said, no, I'm fine by the way that I am. And, and he said, no, 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 you need this wedding garment. So he said, that is, the king said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Because he knew. He knew he really shouldn't be there without the wedding garment. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then these profound words. For many are called. 
but few are chosen. Jesus says uh, there'll be a day when the wedding feast will come. He speaks too of preparation for this wedding feast. In, in Matthew chapter 25, we have this parable as it's listed as the ten virgins. Uh, they're, they're, they're waiting for the bridegroom, if you will, to come. And, and, and it says five were foolish and five were wise. Uh, and, and, and the foolish ones hadn't made preparation. And the wise ones had. And so the end is Jesus saying, watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. Be, be prepared for, for this very one to come. And so in Revelation 19, we see that the, the bridegroom is coming. He, he's coming. And notice, notice how, how, how it's put here. He says, verse 7, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb ha- has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds uh, of the saints. And we realize, how does he get there? How, how, how do you make that kind of preparation? Uh, a fascinating passage. Uh, the book of Revelation we know is, is a bit difficult for us to read at times. It's, it's fascinating. I would encourage you not to read it in such a way that, that, that it sees it sequential or consecutive in the context of time, but rather uh, read it, and this will be obvious to you as you read through various visions that John sees, not just simply one that starts at the beginning and goes to the end, but various visions that, that show the same period of time. Six or seven different visions where, where John sees somewhere between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so we might see various judgments in the book of Revelation. And we wonder, how many judgments are there going to be? You know, the battle of Armageddon takes place in Revelation 16, but it doesn't end until 22. And so well, does that happen then? And then what's left after that, you know, to judge? Well, well it's, it's just going back over the same material, but just from different perspectives, not unlike the Gospels do. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that give us various glimpses at Jesus and, and his life. Some very similar, but, but there's new stuff in each one, and we think, oh, yes. We, we work through this revelation, these visions that John sees, and we see glimpses of, of, of history, and we see glimpses of Jesus' return. And, and each gives us a little different slant, a little different look. Here we have in Revelation 19 this section that begins really in chapter 17 and it's, it's judgments on Babylon, the great harlot but also judgments on the beast and the false prophet and ultimately in chapter 20 Satan himself. We see this beast as he's presented in Revelation as a, as a counterfeit Jesus as a counterfeit savior, as a counterfeit Christ, and this, this power, this rule on the earth, and this rule on the earth that, that could take place in various kinds of governments and so forth and so on, but, but this rule that says, trust me for your provision, trust me for your protection, I am your savior. And we see that in the context of our own countries, it's very easy to get sucked up into that and to, and to trust our own government to be our protector and our provider and, and all of that. It's just easy to do that. And you see, behind that is this false notion of security, false notion of provision, false notion of Savior, really. And then the false prophet is, is, a, is a counterfeit Holy Spirit saying, look at the beast, trust the beast. 
just like the Holy Spirit in reality does and says, trust Jesus, this, this false prophet that's judged as well. And then Satan himself is this counterfeit father, if you will, this one who sees himself as the, as the planner and the instigator and the originator of, of this whole life, which is really death. But, but there's this other one that starts this series of judgments, Babylon, the harlot, the seducer, this evil behind evil, this seducer that says, look at me, and this is the false counterfeit, if you will, bride, this harlot. She says, trust me, come to me. I can satisfy all of your needs. I can give you wealth. I can give you power. I can satisfy every passion that you have. What's fascinating here is that that this Revelation 19 begins with these words, Hallelujah, as this evil, as this harlot, as this seducer, as Babylon is being judged, the the multitude in heaven, if you will, the, the, the saints in glory are shouting, Hallelujah, this is great. In fact, this is what inspired Handel's Hallelujah chorus. It's all around the judgment of evil. It's not about the birth of Christ. It's not so much about even the second coming of Christ, though it is about that, because that's when he comes to judge. But it's this destruction, this destruction of evil. And we are often uncomfortable with saying hallelujah, with reveling in judgment. But these saints in glory had no hesitation at all, because by that time, for them, everything had been unmasked. They knew the evil of evils. I don't suppose that a wife whose marriage has been destroyed by pornography would not be filled with glee to see the industry of pornography destroyed. I cannot believe the parents who've seen the seduction of the world draw their kids from Christ wouldn't shout hallelujah to see that world be destroyed. Cannot believe that those believers who have seen their husbands or their wives or their fathers or their mothers or their children killed by those who persecuted them and hated them for their faith wouldn't shout hallelujah to see those judged. In fact, Paul, as he writes to the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1, gives that exact word to that church as a word of comfort. Listen to these words. 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 5. Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So this is a suffering church. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. In other words, Paul's saying you're suffering and I know that, but God is just. Now for us, again, we can be uncomfortable with this perhaps because we haven't experienced that kind of persecution. We don't get it like they got it. Perhaps it's because we realize that apart from Christ, we deserve that as well, and that's true. And so in these days, before glory, before we're standing there as these saints were, having all of it unmasked and being righteous in the very sight of God because of his work in us, that perhaps it's difficult for us to to get it. It may be that we're so engulfed in Babylon that it just doesn't seem that bad. But they knew it, you see. Because, you see, this judgment, it's, it's, it's part of the very goodness of God. It's part of the very character, moral fiber, if we could put it that way, of God himself. For instance, when God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, he, he reveals himself. You remember the scene, Moses wants to see the glory of God. God says, I'll reveal my glory to you. You can't see it face on, so you have to, I'll put you in the cleft of this rock, so hide your face as I go through. You can see not my front side, but my backside, whatever that means in the context of, of this relationship. And he says to, 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 to Moses, I'm going to reveal myself by giving you my name. And so in Exodus 34, verse 6, we read this. The Lord passed before him, that is before Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we go, yes, that's the very character of God. That's the name of God. But then he goes on to say this but who by no means cleared the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. He's just. He has to be. That's the very moral character of God. And we, they, we, a day will come when with all the other saints we'll see this and say, hallelujah. Notice the description of this great harlot prostitute. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, that is to John, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now he isn't speaking of of actual drunkenness or actual sexual immorality. He's saying that this is idolatry, that they've turned away from God and they've linked up, hooked up, with this, this prostitute, if you will, who's this one to seduce them away from. These could be really nice people, right? Who just simply have turned away from God. You see, we're smart enough, moral enough even, if we could put it that way, to say, I don't want to be like Adolf Hitler, right? 
I don't want to be like him. There's a few, but hopefully we find them before they get too dangerous. But, but, but in one sense, in a spiritual sense, Hitler is in the most dangerous kind of person that exists. It may well be of the most dangerous kind of person that exists in the context of our life spiritually are all the nice people in the world who live without God. Their lives shout, you can be happy, you can be rich, you can be content, you can be peaceful, you can be a good father, you can be a nice um, husband, you, you, can, you, can, you can be a, a fine mother and wife and, and, and successful student, and all these things, all without God. It exists everywhere in our culture. Those are the ones that seduce our children, right? Because we can be like them, because that's the real seductress. Look, look, there's, there's health, and there's wealth, and there's beauty, and there's success, and all of that. And, and you get your Sundays off, right? You, know? you don't have to worry about all of these other things. That's the danger, you see, of our culture. That's the seductress. But, but when it's unmasked, you read it like this, that these kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk and he carried me away in the spirits into a wilderness and I saw a young woman sitting on a scarlet beast and that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven hands, heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding her hand, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality and on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs or the witnesses of Jesus that's what's seen under all of this and that's what we say hallelujah when that when she and all with her is destroyed but you know she's really good she really looks the part the next line is this. This is John saying, the Apostle John. He said, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. <clears throat> She's really good. And John said, whoa, I'm glad I see it here, if you will. Thus, this false counterfeit bride is destroyed and then the bride of Christ comes before him and this great marriage feast, if you will, this great marriage feast of the Lamb. Now notice it says that, 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 that this, lamb, this bride had made herself ready. How did she do that? Well, it was granted her to clothe herself, wedding clothes, with fine linen, bright and pure. Okay, we get that. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does that mean? Does that mean that we need to live righteously so that we can be prepared for Christ to come? And the answer to that is a qualified yes. Qualified in the sense that righteousness doesn't originate with us. It originates with him. You remember the prophet Isaiah said, none of our righteousness are as fil filthy rags. Prophet, the, the apostle Paul says that, that, that no one is righteous, no, not one. He speaks of a righteousness that he says that comes apart from the law, that is apart from his own merit, but comes by way of faith, the same way that Abraham was declared righteous. It was by faith, not by his own, his own works. So there's a righteousness that comes to us that's a gift of God in the same way that the host of the marriage feast would supply 
the clothing that comes to us. We're clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. In fact, in Revelation, it speaks of this clothes. For instance, in Revelation in chapter 6 and uh, in verse 9, we read this. When he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as themselves, as they themselves had been. And then in chapter 7, in verse 13, after this great multitude, that is the church from the Old Testament and the New Testament, this great multitude, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And so we're bathed, if you will, in Christ. And thus we're white and we're prepared in that sense. But during this interval time, you see, what happens when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ is that his righteousness penetrates. His righteousness, his righteousness works through us in such a way that it produces in us the very holiness of God. That's why he commands us, be holy for I'm holy. He says, it comes with this righteousness that's given to us. And then as we trust in Jesus, you see, then we're about doing that which is pleasing to him. That's our calling here and now. That's how we're to think of ourselves. As this one who's betrothed to Christ, this one who's making ourselves ready for his coming so that when he returns, he will be pleased. So Jesus tells the parable of the talents. He says, be prepared. You've been given the very righteousness of Christ. No, 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 no. Live that out. Be prepared. How do we do that? We do that by trusting in him, by not trusting in ourselves. We do that by, by realizing that we're sinners and thus we confess and we repent of our sins and we're constantly turning to him. And in the midst of that confession and repentance of seeing our sin and turning from it, we as, 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 as the voice from heaven in Revelation chapter 18 says this in verse 4, it says, come out of her, that is, this seductress, this Babylon, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so he says, you come out of that, to see that, to pray that God would give us discernment. And he gives us discernment by way of, of having our minds transformed, because they're being renewed all the time by the word of God. And so as we, as we, wash our minds by way of the scripture as we see what is pleasing to God what he loves and what he hates all of that you see penetrates our minds and our hearts and we get to see it increasingly see one of the things that marks maturity as believers is that this Babylon becomes increasingly unmasked that we can see her for who she really is now Many of us have been scarred deeply by her. But 
God gives us repentance so that we turn from her and trust in him. That's the preparation. This constant persevering in faith. This constant standing in him, for him, in the context of our lives. Think of your life. Put it in that context. Where is it for you? That's the preparation that we're to make. And then when he returns, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that we shall see him and be like him. And that brings us to a feast. There's this table that's set before us. It is known as the Last Supper, I think the First Supper. But, but, but regardless... And Jesus said he wouldn't eat or it wouldn't drink again the fruit of the vine until he drank it with them, and I would suggest with us as well. When his, when the, his father's kingdom comes in all, of its, in all of its fullness. Do you realize, do I realize, that a day will come when we'll be around a table with Jesus. There's an expression that I never use or rarely use at communion. Sometimes I use it when I'm at big churches and I'm serving communion and they're real formal and all of that and we have robes and stuff. And so I try to go really closely by, for Presbyterians it's called the Book of Common Worship, for Episcopalians and Anglicans it's called the Book of Common Prayer. And so I try to get all the lines right. But but I don't usually use it because there's a line that I just am uncomfortable saying because it sounds so presumptuous. And in all of those rituals there's a line that goes like this that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and broke it. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name give it to you. Now I don't use that expression. It just sounds kind of even now it makes me shiver. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to say that. But but it's true. There's a sense in which this isn't my table, it's his and and here I am because you called me to do this. And, and so so I do it in but I'm doing it in his name. Now the value of saying that, however, is this. For us to realize that a day will come when we'll be in the presence of Jesus clothed perfectly in righteousness inside and out so that the expression can be made of us that there we are clothed in white linen. That'll be the most fashionable dress in glory, right? We'll all look great because it'll be the glory of God. And do you realize that there'll probably be millions upon millions at that feast, but that each one of us will feel as intimate with Jesus as a husband is with a wife. That at that moment in time, You will know him, and he will know you, and that will satisfy everything. So you see, this meal looks back and forward. We do know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, dare I say, as I'm ministering in his name, 
give it to you. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples as, dare I say, I ministering in his name, give it to you. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death. And so we do that. By, By coming to this table, we declare his death. We say, I am united with Jesus. He's present here. I, and by his spirit, I'm united with him in his death. Thus, when he died, I died. My sins paid for, forgiven. He rises, I rise. Therefore, I live in newness of life. We declare the Lord's death and all that that means until he comes. So so it's not always looking back, but it's looking forward. A day will come when we'll sit in the very presence of Jesus, not simply by his spirit, if we will, but with him. And there won't be a short squatty guy saying, as I am ministering in his name, give it to you. Jesus will simply say, here. And at that moment in time, there won't be any tears. At that point in time, there won't be any fear. At that point in time, there won't be any hatred. At that point in time, there won't be any injustice. At that point in time, there won't be any guilt. At that point in time, everything will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father in heaven, really God, how do you expect us to believe that? (laughs) So I pray that in the midst of this meal, this supper, these very basic elements that you would work, that you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way as we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus, that he's as close to us as this bread and juice is, that his promises are true, and that you will strengthen our faith in such a way as to know by the word that we have just considered and by this moment in his presence that that day is in fact coming and we can place our whole hope upon it. So please do that work in us, even now, Lord Jesus, be present among us, as you promised you would be, as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, it's the table of the Lord. He invites all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those who desire to live in this time of preparation for his coming as is consistent with profession of faith in Jesus. Always looking to that great hope of his return. If that's true for you, please come as you come these two sections can come down this aisle to my right these two down the aisle I'm, I'm in my left in the aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in the cup 
and allow to go off in your head, Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Please come.